ever question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello again. Nice to be back with you. Um, we were talking about the Gospel of John last week. So I'll finish you up, up with uh, the Gospel of John and get on to talking about Paul. Now, <clears throat> for John, the word sign does not, uh, is not like a highway sign that points to something that's not present. For John, sign makes something which makes present that which it signifies. It brings salvation to those who believe. So death and the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest of all signs, through which the meaning of all the others is revealed. Um, another meaning for sign is it is a symbol of a truth that cannot be observed directly. For example, in the first sign at Cana of Galilee, the water became wine, symbolizing the new life that Jesus brings to us. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, signs refer to events that mark the coming of the end. Um, but for John, typically, it's loaded with theological meaning. Now, the cleansing of the temple follows by, by placing it at the opening of Jesus' ministry. John is saying that the Spirit was present in Jesus from the outset. In the remark, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, John is saying that with the resurrection, Jesus will replace the Jewish temple as the place where we find God. In sum, uh, is a, we could come up with a proportionality here. Changing water into wine is to new life as cleansing of the temple is to spiritual worship of the church brought into being through faith. John also likes double meanings. For example, the Greek phrase translated as born anew, or in King James is born again, can also be translated born from above, where the Spirit comes from. Again, the lifting up of the Son of Man refers both to the elevation of Christ on the cross, his death, and the elevation of Christ to heaven, the resurrection. Now, Christ's coming brings judgment as well as salvation. For those who do not believe in him are already condemned by their blindness. For John, the, the great sin is unbelief. But knowing Jesus is not just an intellectual matter, any more than knowing any other person. We can know all there is to know about that person, their, their height, their weight. Um, but what that doesn't tell us anything about what kind of character we're dealing with here. Um, so knowing Jesus is uh, about perceiving who he is. That's the key thing. For his identity is revealed through the Spirit. Uh, as uh, Peter said in his great confession, um, Jesus challenged him, 
we were talking about what people who were talking about calling him. And he says to Peter, now who do you say I am? And he says, uh, I believe, believe that you are the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he, Jesus automatically says, no person has told you this. Only my Father has made this revelation to you possible. Um, so we're dealing with the, with the world of the Spirit here. Um, the final judgment, the coming of the kingdom, is already here. It's not some future expectation. Um, so when he talks about the coming of the kingdom, Jesus says it's already among you. It's right in you. Now, the dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well explicitly links together the new life and worship already alluded to in the sign at Cana and the cleansing of the temple. The fact that Samaritans can come to believe, as she did, shows the universal nature of eternal life and true worship. Now, the first sign was the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. The second sign for John is the healing of a Roman official's son in chapter 4 of his gospel. Now here again, John emphasizes the universal scope of the work, which is salvation, that Jesus performs. His word not only restores physical life, but also gives eternal life to all those who believe. The third sign, the healing of a man in Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate, Pool, is a reinterpretation of one of the synoptic healings in Mark and Matthew and Luke. True meaning is given in the long discourse that follows. Namely, it points to the final work of the Father, which is raising the dead and giving eternal life. Jesus is only doing the Father's work. So there's much more to it than just a physical healing. This identification of Christ's work, authority, and will with God's leads to increasing conflict with the Jews. Now for them, this was um, um, blasphemy. The fourth sign in John's Gospel is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And the fifth sign is the walking on water episode. These are also reinterpretations of synoptic miracles. Unlike Moses, Jesus doesn't just supply material needs, food, but spiritual food as well. His kingdom is not of this world, but not even the disciples understand all this. The sixth sign for John is giving sight to a man born blind. Now, the blind man symbolizes all of us, born spiritually blind, as it were. The real miracle is not recovery of his physical sight, but the opening of his spiritual eyes to recognize who Jesus is. Only those who acknowledge this blindness can have their eyes opened, not their physical eyes, but the eyes of their souls. While Jesus' conflict with the Jews is seemingly over the law in general and Sabbath observance in particular, the real issue is his identity. Who do you say that I am? The seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for four days. 
Now, this is found only in John's Gospel. Um, whatever the historicity of this event is, it is the symbolic meaning of this miracle that is important to John. Again, Lazarus symbolizes all of us. We're already dead apart from Christ. Jesus gives eternal life now to those who believe in him. Restoring Lazarus to physical life is but a partial manifestation of the glory to be revealed in God's of eternal life. The ultimate revelation of this life is to be given only in the death and resurrection of Jesus, not Lazarus. After all, Lazarus was just a resuscitation, not a resurrection. Um, he would go back to living his old life until he died again. After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the famous Palm Sunday procession, um, Jesus withdraws for an evening meal with his disciples. Now, clearly, this is a version of the Last Supper. But John places it on the day before the Passover Eve. John is not concerned with historical accuracy. By placing it here, he synchronizes the crucifixion with the traditional slaying of the lamb on the day of the Passover. Now John's account of the foot washing recalls the image of Jesus as the suffering servant so vivid in the synoptics. He also sets up a vivid contrast um, between the true disciple and the false disciple Judas. The remark, it was night when Judas leaves, refers not so much to physical darkness as to the darkness of unbelief, of one who fails to see that Jesus is the light and the life. Now, in the farewell, so-called farewell discourses, um, John's interpretation of apocalyptic expectations, and if you remember what I said before, apocalypse comes from the Greek, meaning a revelation. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, it refers to a revelation uh, of um, the last time. The chief, the chief theme is the relationship between Jesus and the Father, a mystical union grounded in their mutual love for each other. Uh, John stresses Jesus' coming in the spirit to the church now, rather than some future event. Without the spirit, there can be no church. Eternal life, as Jesus, John sees it, is life motivated and sustained by trust in the love of God revealed in Christ. Finally, we come to the great prayer, chapter 17, sometimes called Christ's high priestly prayer, in which he consecrates the church to its life and task in the world. Actually, it was not through any single prayer that Jesus did this, but through his total life. Christ's life is a prayer for his people. Historical Jesus is meaningful only when known to us as the Christ who lives in all ages, according to John. Revealing himself as the Father, himself and the Father, to the church. Knowing Jesus in the flesh and witnessing his resurrection does not make it blessed. 
but knowing Jesus as present in the Spirit through faith in all places and ages. Um, now, when we come back from the break, we'll, we'll get started on Paul. Um, talking about Paul involves two dimensions, two, two uh, ways of looking at him. Um, and so today, we'll, before time's up, we'll have finished with um, Paul's career and his work. Um, we have a break now, so I'll see you shortly. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Okay, we've finished with John's Gospel. Let's go on to Paul, who is obviously a very pivotal character in the New Testament and gets into the nitty-gritty of um, what the life of the Christian is all about. Paul's writings have been treasured because, first of all, they have the power to speak meaningfully and movingly to those who have never met him in person. 
His strong point was his writing, not his preaching. He himself said his preaching, he was a poor preacher. But secondly, more than anyone, he is instrumental in translating the very Jewish message about Jesus into the language and cultural terms that communicate with Gentiles unfamiliar with Hebrew scriptures. And uh, I can see that uh, it's very, very, very much needed today. Paul was well educated. He was fluent in Greek as well as Hebrew. His letters are the earliest known New Testament documents. Um, biblical scholars place his letters to the first and second Thessalonians around 45 AD. So this is written down even before the Gospels were written. The Epistle to the Romans contains valuable information on the last years of his life, and it contains the most systematic statement of his understanding of Jesus and of God's purpose through him. His most personal and emotional letter is to the Galatians. Now, Philemon is only a purely is the only purely personal letter that has survived, and it's very brief. It deals with the so-called Judaizing controversy, the um, letter to the Galatians, that is. And Paul wants to demonstrate, among other things, that his commission comes directly from God and is not in any way dependent upon the apostles. He's much less interested in the details of his conversion than Leake was in Acts. But even so, it was pivotal for his life. He does not use term, the term apostle in the more restricted sense of someone who witnessed the resurrection. He did not. Um, but that's the official definition of the church today. That to, be an, to be designated an apostle, you had to be uh, witness to the resurrection, among other things. But in the sense of one who had been commissioned by God to carry his will, he dates his apostleship from his experience on the road to Damascus when he got knocked off his horse and um, was left unable to see until he got into Damascus and was directed to um, a Christian there who baptized him and then he got his sight back. Um, So uh, Paul uses the term apostle in the sense of a person who had been commissioned by God to carry out God's will. Um, the difficulty lay at his having been a persecutor of the church prior to his conversion. At issue is that he had to choose between two different readings and interpretations of the same set of sacred writings. His understanding took a new and revolutionary turn when he became convinced that Jesus had indeed risen and that this was in accord with the scriptures. Unlike the apostles in Jerusalem, whose activities initially were limited to evangelism among Jews, his commission seems to have been to the Gentiles from the outset. The retreat he made to Arabia which he mentions as being three years, 
uh, was probably in what we now call Jordan. Um, conversion is not just a one-time event. Obviously, it had a big uh, his experience on the road to Damascus was a pivotal experience for him. But notice that he was at the stoning of Stephen, and he, he approved of it. But one cannot help but wonder if the way in which Stephen handled it, uh, handled his death, um, may have made a, a real impression upon Paul, who was Saul at the time. I changed names because of his conversion. Um, So it's not surprising that after that experience, uh, he went three years into what we now call Jordan to digest, ingest, um, mull over what it, all had happened and what it meant for him. And that's why it's always a good idea to make a, ret a silent retreat prior to any big decision in our life, such as getting married or getting ordained. Um, the issue of his apostolic authority troubled him. But his main preoccupation in writing to the Galatians was the requirements for admission to the Christian community. Paul had not required the Gentile convert Titus to be circumcised. And by accepting this, the so-called uh, Jerusalem Council, the leaders of the, in Jerusalem, had given tacit approval to Paul's principle that faith alone was the only requisite for becoming a Christian. Um, didn't have to be Jewish. Um, and that has been the context for the debate since the Reformation about uh, this faith alone. Um, for Paul, it was in the context of the uh, Judaizing controversy. Do you have to become a Christian? Do you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses? Um, the so-called Council of Jerusalem, which is Paul refers to it in chapter 2 of Galatians, establishes that Peter and James would devote their energies to converting Jews, while Paul and his co-workers would concentrate exclusively on Gentiles. By agreeing to contribute to the poor in Jerusalem, Paul meant the Christian community there, not just the poor in general. Um, you have to keep in mind that Galatia was not a town. It was a province of the Roman Empire. So this is kind of an open letter to all the Christians in Galatia. The issue seems not to have been settled by the meeting in Jerusalem with the um, original apostles, even though they gave stamp of approval to Paul's agenda. Later, Peter visited Antioch and was happy to share meals with the Gentile Christians until a group of Judaizers arrived from Jerusalem. Even Barnabas was swayed by their arguments 
And Paul found it necessary to reprimand their duplicity, which you can find it in chapter 2 of Galatians. After his work in Asia Minor, Paul went on to Europe. He seems to have had a uniquely affectionate relationship with the Christians at Philippi, letter to the Philippians, judging from his letter. He mentions that he encountered suffering and shameful treatment there, which he mentions in 1 Thessalonians, but he gives none of the details found in Acts. From there, he moved to Thessalonica, where his preaching was so effective that it aroused persecution from the Gentiles. Uh, by converting so many people to faith in Jesus, um, he, was, he was hurting the pocketbooks of the people who were um, selling memorabilia uh, for the pagan gods. So it was an um, economic dispute, really. He mentions being in Athens, but says nothing about evangelizing there. In contracts, contrast to chapter 17 in Acts. He specifically says in 1 Corinthians that a Corinthian family, the household of Stephanus, was the first to be converted in Achaia, which is the Roman province, which includes both Athens and Corinth. This fact also gives us an insight into the church's growth. It grew by the conversion of households, not just individuals. Paul's letters to the Corinthians indicates that the core of the church there consisted of those who were socially, economically, and intellectually inferior. In a city that had a reputation for wealth, sensuality, and pleasure-seeking, but not learning. Corinth seemed to have been simultaneously Paul's favorite and most problem-ridden church. Ephesus was known for its wealth, and the meteorite, which was worshipped as Artemis, the Greek virgin fertility god, goddess, located in a magnificent temple in Ephesus. Um, according to Acts 19, the success of Paul's evangelistic activity there threatened, again, the pilgrim and souvenir trade. Typically, though, Paul describes his difficulties there only in general terms even while conveying the deep anxiety that his suffering brought him. Following his final visit to Corinth, Paul planned to take a collection to the church in Jerusalem uh, for famine relief, and then to leave the eastern Mediterranean for Rome and beyond, to Spain. And uh, he mentions all that in Romans chapter 15. Only the book of Acts fills in the details of the journey to Jerusalem. The reception of his gift by the church there and his seizure by the Roman authorities in which Paul ends up appealing on the basis of his Roman citizenship. Uh, he, he appeals to the emperor, his case, um, and when any citizen does that, the local officials have no choice but to send him to Rome. He went to Rome for about, was under house arrest, as it were, for about two years, waiting for his case to come up before the emperor, who was the final supreme court of the Roman Empire. Um, 
the fact that he was later executed indicates he lost his case. Um, from this point on, we have no certain information from Paul unless we assume the letter to the Philippians was written from prison in Rome. But this is uncertain. It may have been Ephesus. But more important than its time or place of origin is the outlook of death that Paul reveals in Philippians. In some ways, he would prefer to be delivered from prison and death so he could continue his work among the churches. But in other ways, he preferred to die since it would lead him directly into the presence of the Lord and that was far better than earthly life. Yet whatever his personal preference, he was equal to honor God whether by life or by death. Now, careful study of the so-called pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus, show that they were written much later, perhaps as late as the middle of the second century. Now, this is um, not uncommon in a lot of scripture. You remember in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, as it constituted today, uh, had three authors, the original Isaiah, so-called second Isaiah, and a third Isaiah. So named because they don't know who they really were. But they tacked on their, their information to the scroll that started by the original Isaiah. And it ended up being quite a long scroll indeed. Um, but these people, didn't, they didn't have anything called copyright um, or patents or anything like that. And they felt it, they saw no um, problem with writing in someone's name. Um, they, they genuinely felt that if Paul had been there to write this, he would have said the same thing. Um, we'll take a break again and come back in a little while and uh, finish off um, the first part of our discussion of Paul. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. 
Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello again. We were finishing up the pastoral letters written to Timothy and Titus, supposedly by Paul. But biblical scholars are in agreement that um, it was written too too much much too later after his his execution to have been written by Paul. Um, but a lot of biblical writers did the same sort of thing uh, in order to give their writings more weight. Um, Now, traditions from outside the Bible, extra-biblical tradition, supplies other accounts of Paul's ministry, of which the Acts of Paul is the most extensive and romantic. It is in this document, and we have no way of knowing how accurate it is, that we find the only physical description of Paul. Quote, a man small in stature, bald and bow-legged, with eyebrows that meet and a somewhat prominent nose, yet full of grace, end quote. The traditional site of his martyrdom is where the church of St. Paul outside the walls is located in Rome. Um, he was beheaded, and that's significant because uh, that was reserved for people with some kind of status, and in Paul's status was that he was a Roman citizen. Um, crucifixion was reserved for the lowest element of the population, such as slaves and um, hopelessly evil criminals. Um, the traditional site of his martyrdom is at the church, if you ever get to Rome. Um, so there's so much for the framework of what he was doing, where he was working. I'm going to start talking about his place among the apostles. The term apostle had connotations in both Gentile and Jewish communities. Among the cynic, stoic philosophers of the period, apostolos was used by the teachers to mean bearers of divine truth. And the Greek word apostolos refers to originally just a description of a messenger who went from one king to another. 
bearing messages back and forth between uh, royalty. Um, for these um, philosophers, it, it admit uh, teachers who bore divine truth. However, since they lacked any definite conception of God, they thought of themselves as partners with divine reality in spreading wisdom about the true nature of things as philosophers. Now, for the Jews, the equivalent term was shaliach, which was applied to those commissioned by God, for example, the prophets. Paul uses the term in a way that both resembles and differs from both these meanings. The essential meaning for Paul is that a, an apostle is meant to preach the gospel. Now, in the early church and historically in the church, the word has been reserved for those disciples who were with Jesus from the beginning and who witnessed the resurrection. Obviously, Paul doesn't qualify on those grounds. But he does... Um, He claims that he only handed on the deposit of faith given to him, which has been the church's role ever since, the magisterium. How does the cross bring about redemption? Paul never fully develops this idea, but uses three models. First, as an obedient man from heaven. And this can be found in his letter to the Philippians. Jesus was not too, too proud to fully accept the limitations of humanity, including death, which in some unexplained way is in accord with God's will. That acceptance has brought and will continue to bring redemptive benefits for the whole of creation. Secondly, um, he portrays redemption as being a liberation from slavery. Paul sees all humans, but especially the Jews, as enslaved to the regulations of legalistic religious systems. By reopening the way of faith exemplified by Abraham, <clears throat> Jesus sets us free from the mingled pride and guilt which characterizes formal religion. Sounds like... Um, complaint that we have a lot to people talk about today. Um, thirdly, redemption meant overcoming alienation. A problem is not to close the gap between moral performance and God's demands. Our arrogance and rejection of God has more than alienated us from God. It has badly distorted and disoriented our perception of life as a whole. Human vices are only symptoms of that alienation, not the cause of it. As Paul sees it, Jesus' death is God's instrument for bridging the gulf we have created, for healing our sickness, removing the barrier of guilt, and restoring all creation to its proper relationship to God. The most elaborate statement of Christ's role as cosmic redeemer is in the letter to the Colossians, where he is presented as the instrument of the creation of the world, of the reconciliation of all earthly and heavenly beings to God, and of the defeat of the principalities and powers 
through the cross. In addition to the leadership of each local church consisting of bishops and deacons, there were those with special gifts who tended to think that theirs was more important than others. This led to pride and rivalry over spiritual gifts. Paul's apostolic authority had to be invoked to put these people in their places. In other words, to show them that the welfare of the entire body depended on the proper function of each member, not just one group over, over another. The whole of 1 Corinthians is taken up with Paul's responses to questions addressed to him. In most instances, the problems originated within the community itself, but it had serious effects on the attitudes of outsiders toward the gospel. Partisan conflicts resulting from personal loyalties to one or another of the apostles the appeal to civil courts to settle disputes within, within the church, and the sensual, sensual and emotional excesses that attended worship, especially the Eucharistic meal. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he um, reasoned the riot act for showing up early for a Eucharist, which was always in someone's home, and drinking up a lot of the wine before they even got started. Um, but in the next breath, he refers to them as saints. So sainthood for Paul meant a member of the com community of the people of God not being behaving too good to be true. Um, you could be a saint and a sinner at the same time, which is the case for most of us. Um, okay, the excesses attending the Eucharistic meal, speaking in tongues, which could lead outsiders to think that Christians were mad, crazy. Now, the most serious was the condoning of incest by the Corinthians, by the Corinthian Christians something that was not even the pagans tolerated. As regards sex in general, Paul admitted he had no word from the Lord, but felt able to offer advice through the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not consider sexual relations within marriage to be sinful. His only reservation about Christians marrying is that it will distract them from churchly responsibilities. The mention of the impending distress as a reason for abstaining from marriage probably refers to the coming of the end of the age, which he expected soon. Uh, in his later letters, it will show that he evolved on that subject. He was not offering rules for an ongoing institution, but practical advice for the immediate future on how the Lord's work would best be done. Now, from his frequent mention of women in this letter, it seems easy, it seems that they were important workers in the Pauline churches. He assigned a subordinate role to women in the church and kept the principle of synagogue worship that they were not to be heard either by way of question or comment. Now, while it is unfair to say that Paul was a misogynist, he did not go beyond the limits that his age placed upon women. 
Apart from the central issue that divided Paul from other apostles, should Gentiles observe the law of Moses, the sources of conflict among them were personal personalities and money. The Corinthians had split into factions over preferences for Paul or Apollos. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes the point that the contributions of each is complementary and essential to their sound spiritual growth. We have another break coming up, so I'll finish up with Paul here when we get, come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Getting back to Paul and the Corinthians... Um, the Corinthians seem to have been a very factional-ridden church from the beginning, and even uh, many years later, uh, they had a reputation for being um, very fractious. But Paul's point to them is that it doesn't matter whether you learned the faith from Paul or, or Paulus. Um, each has their own take on it, but the same gospel. And it is God who gives the growth, not any particular person. Um, apparently, Paul was accused of not earning his material support, supporting himself monetarily. Now, he claims a right to support from the preaching of the gospel. But he goes on to deny that he availed himself of that right. 
<clears throat> he endured hardships rather than sponge on others. What money he did collect was for the poor in Jerusalem. Indeed, it was to fulfill his obligation to the, Christian, to the church in Jerusalem that he delayed his journey to Rome and Spain in order to accompany the delegates and money back there before setting out for the West. And it was in the keeping of this commitment that led him into the hands of the Roman authorities in Jerusalem, which uh, it, it, when he appealed to Caesar, it made it had to go to Rome, um, and eventually led to his death. Paul seems to have been a controversial person in his own time with, with a fiery temper. He denied the charge of vacillating, but admits to being unimpressive in personal appearance and speech. This was so that God might be glorified, not any physical beauty or personal talents he might possess. Whatever success he had was the doing of God, not him. His real gift seems to have been the power of his letters, attested to by the fact of their survival and by the early practice of distributing them among churches other than the intended recipient, by the widespread imitation of them, some even written in his name. Now, this was not considered plagiarism or fraud, but was meant to honor and in part borrow from the veneration in which he was held by the Gentile churches. It is significant that later generations appealed to Paul for a decisive word in the midst of conflict. This brings us to Paul's understanding of wisdom. There is no hint of metaphysical speculation in Paul's writings. In other words, he was not interested in debating philosophers of the time, nor in developing a critical or a comparative approach to philosophical questions from the side of Christian truth. His gospel did contain a kind of wisdom, though not of the rational or merely intuitive variety taught by philosophers. Nor was it the esoteric, religious type of wisdom found in Gnostic circles. Now, the Gnostics um, were people who had metaphysical um, incompatibility between uh, the material world and the spiritual world. Uh, they were considered to be incompatible. And um, this, of course, met great difficulties for the idea of incarnation. If the, if the material and spiritual are opposed to each other, how can you have God incarnate in a physical body? Um, and the Gnostics t talked about a secret knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. Uh, a secret knowledge that could get them into heaven. Um, but it wasn't open to just everybody. Um, <clears throat> On the one hand, Jews demanded signs to show divine approval of Paul's work. 
he wants the healings to be evidence of the Spirit's work within the church, rather than an advertising inducement to lure people in. On the other hand, the Greeks ask for wisdom, but the kind of truth God offers is devoid of wisdom as measured by human standards. Unlike a philosopher's rational arguments, Paul's message centers on the symbol of human weakness, the cross, Jesus' death. Humanly speaking, is evidence of only weakness and failure. Um, which has led some people to compare Jesus with Socrates um, as being opposites from each other. Um, Now, Paul insists that God uses the message of the cross for man's redemption because of its stress on weakness. God chose the weak, not because he had no other means, because he did not want the redemption of man to rest in any way on human strengths or virtues. Only in this way could arrogant human beings be brought to acknowledge their dependence upon God. On the face of it, the crucifixion seems like a failure. Paul does assert a hidden wisdom for Christians which is not available to outsiders or even to the spiritually immature within the church. It is also hidden from the powers that control the present age. Otherwise, they would not have contributed to their own defeat by crucifying Jesus. This wisdom is not perceptible to human eyes or ears, nor is it conceivable by the mind of man. It is accessible to mature Christians only as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the terms psychikos, which is the natural world, um, the spiritual side of human beings, and sarkikos, which is the fleshly side of human beings, to describe those who cannot discern the divine truth. Both terms connote the merely human understanding unaided by the divine spirit. It's important to Gnostics who thought the material world inherently evil. The true sign of maturity is the enjoyment of the common life in the Christian community. Those who claim to be super spiritual, but whose lives are filled with jealousy and divisiveness, show that they are not living by the spirit, but by their own self-seeking devices. True spirituality manifests itself in a concern to build up the church. Tearing down the church is the same as destroying the sanctuary where God dwells by his spirit. There's no ground for boasting or discrimination. All accomplishments and talents are needed. Each task is essential for the welfare of the whole. Well, we're coming to the end of our hour here. Um, I will be saying, having more to say about Paul next week. Um, he can be considered from many facets, uh, perspectives, uh, to give us a more com- complete picture of this very 
a complicated person. Uh, have a good week and see you back next Thursday. God bless. For tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square, please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.